If you have your Bibles open to Luke chapter 15, it's uh, where we're going to be for three weekends. Uh, one of my favorite, uh, if not my favorite chapter in all of the Bible. I just love this chapter of Luke. And uh, it's all about uh, things that were lost being found. And we're going to be talking about that this week and the next couple of weeks. Things that were lost that really count that are found. And it made me think, I don't know if you've ever lost anything that was important to you. Uh, a couple years ago, uh, I was getting ready to go to Nicaragua with a team of people from Gateway. And um, it was about the same time I decided I needed to make a change uh, with my phone. I had like a dumb phone. That's what I called it. Uh, right? I couldn't text and uh, I could barely, <clears throat> barely make calls on it. Couldn't take pictures with it. Like, what good's a phone if you can't take pictures? And so uh, everybody kept telling me, you know, you need to get a phone so, you know, you can answer email and text and all that stuff. And so saved my money and I went out and bought an iPhone. And I was really excited. I had the iPhone and now I could, you know, I could text and all this stuff. And I thought, well, I'll take it to Nicaragua with me. I'd just gotten it. And I thought, well, I'll take it. I won't need a camera. I'll use my phone. Um, I'll be able to FaceTime while I'm there. That's going to be really cool. And um, all that stuff. So I had it all figured out. It was really good. And then I read this article online a couple of days before I went to um, Nicaragua. And it said that the number one place, the number one location where uh, phones are ripped off is at airports. In fact, electronics in general. And so it was all this, you know, here's what you need to do. Here's how you take care of your phone to make sure, you know, that it doesn't get ripped off. And I was like, well, I just bought my phone. I don't want to lose my phone. I can't afford to replace it. So I'm going to take good care of it. And so I flew with the team. Um, let's see, this is a couple years ago. We did a a red eye, an all-nighter, uh, flew into Houston. So the drill there is you get there early in the morning and uh, you go through all the lines and then uh, we we're going to have breakfast. And I think there was uh, five of us on the team. So uh, at the Houston airport, there's this kind of a food court area and there's just a whole bunch of tables and then restaurants all around it. And so we, we picked a table and then everybody went to, um, to get something to eat. So I, uh, I went over to this one restaurant and I'm getting ready to order my food, and I'm thinking, oh, where's my, where's my wallet? I'm feeling, okay, there's my wallet. Where's my phone? No, <clears throat> there's not. I'm starting to panic. I can't find my, I can't find my phone. And then I'm, I'm thinking to myself, you know, how many people have already bumped into me and all that stuff? And I, I realized I didn't have my phone. So I'm standing there in line, and, and I'm thinking to myself, I haven't even been at the airport like, you know, half an hour and I already had my phone stolen. I mean, it was just, I don't know if you've ever had that feeling just like a, oh, you know. First of all, I just felt dumb. Like, I can't believe I did that. I can't believe that I, I didn't pay close attention to it. And then I, my mind started racing like, you know, what's on my phone and what will they have access to and who do I need to call? Oh, well, like, wait, I can't call anybody. And, uh, you know, how am I going to do all that? Just, just kind of panicked. And so I'm in line, I'm ordering my breakfast, and I'm just, I'm just kind of really, I can't believe I did that. Really, really bummed about the whole thing. Anyways, I got my breakfast, and I'm walking back to the table, and uh, our table's kind of in the middle of this whole area, and every, nobody's at the table. Um, everybody's out getting food. And as I get close to the table, I look at the table, and sitting right in the middle of the table, there's nobody at the table, just my phone sitting on the middle of the table 
with nobody watching it, with nobody there. I was so tired, apparently I just set the phone down and walked away. So here's the irony, right? I thought somehow somebody very strategically and stealthily, you know, kind of bumped up against me and stole my phone, when in reality, I left it with a great big neon sign, right? Like, <laughs> just take my phone, and nobody took it. So anyways, I got back to the table, and I, you know, held my phone, and we hugged and reminisced about good times and got reacquainted and went on from there. But I don't know, maybe you've lost something, you know, maybe it was a phone maybe your keys. You ever done that? Like when you really needed your keys and you couldn't find them. Maybe it's your wallet. Maybe your purse. And, right? That's pretty complicated because now you got to call the credit card companies and what was in there. And uh, maybe if you're like me, you've lost your wedding ring a few dozen times. I can't even tell you how many times I've lost this ring. This is why. Because it just comes off and on. And, and uh, I, now I just always look in my gardening gloves because that's almost always where it is. But I've, I've lost it quite a few times. Maybe you've lost a child. You know, I mean, temporarily. Um, I've done that. Uh, I've done that also several times. Done it in Target, done it in the mall, done it at the zoo. Um, I'm always supposed to tell that, that it was always my fault. Oh, just my fault, not my wife's fault. It was always my fault. Maybe you've, maybe you've been lost. I was uh, looking for a, a, a car, a used car last week on Craigslist. You ever done that? And I had to go to all these weird, you know, um, addresses in Portland. And I, you know, maybe you've been lost. Uh, maybe you've been lonely. Maybe you've been desperate. Luke 15 is all about that. It's all about our God who cares deeply, deeply about the lost. Our text begins in chapter 15, verse 1. It says this, Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Jesus. And it's pretty, we're getting pretty used to this at this point. He's drawing large crowds. And the Pharisees and the scribes, those are the religious leaders, they grumbled. They said, this man receives sinners. He hangs out with sinners and he eats with them. And that was disgusting to them. They couldn't believe that. Let's pray together. Father God, I pray for us now as we open your word. I pray that as we think about that which was lost, as we think about the good shepherd who went on a search, that, Father, you would touch our hearts this morning, that you would awaken us to what it is you've done for us, to a new level of appreciation, of, of gratitude, of mission and purpose. So be our teacher now. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said. Yes, yeah, so we have a God who seeks the lost. We have a God who came to earth to seek the lost. A God, in order to connect with people, he ate with them, even with the sinners, to build relationships. Jesus has been doing this for about two and a half years now as we've been going through the Gospel of Luke. We're about two and a half years into his three-year ministry. And Jesus has been seeking people out. In this passage we're looking at this morning, there are two groups of sinners that are mentioned here. Sometimes we break them up into the upper class and the lower class sinners. So the upper class sinners, if you will, these have been like, uh, like the, um, the tax collectors. So they were kind of like the, we would, they would think of them in those days as the upper class sinners. Uh, they were rich, they were educated, they, they, were, they were connected, um, but they were also despised. People, people hated them. It would, it would be like, if you can imagine, I know I've given you this illustration before, but it would be like we all went to bed one night and in the middle of the night when we were sleeping and when we dropped our guard, 
uh, the Canadians invaded us. They just, they just flooded over the border from the north with their hockey sticks. And before we knew it, they had taken over the nation. And we were all saying, eh, and stuff like that, right? And so now, we're, now they're, we're, we're, we're occupied. They, they, they own us now, all right? And so that, this, is our, this is our new life, our new reality. And, and they need to collect taxes from us. So what they do is they, they go to different communities and they basically contract with individuals within the community, uh, American citizens, to collect taxes for them. So you can imagine, like, they would just, they'd need to find somebody. So, uh, you know, like maybe, so maybe Aaron. Aaron's over here in the front. <clears throat> so maybe they would just say, hey, Aaron, you know, would you collect taxes for us? And Aaron says, yeah, okay, I, you know, I got to I'm building a new house. I need the money. So, um, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll do that. So what they would do is they would tell Aaron, okay, now, we need this much money from you each year from people in Washougal. And so what we need is for you to go out and collect that money. And uh, you, if you need help, uh, we'll send some soldiers with you. And they have hockey sticks. And if there's any problem, you know, they'll, they'll take care of the, the, the people. And so you just go neighborhood to neighborhood. And you collect money. And you send it up to us in the north. But whatever extra you collect, you get to keep for yourself. So if you collect a lot extra money, you can finish that house and do some add-ons and get those windows in time and all that stuff. So now imagine, you know, Aaron's going around. He's... He's knocking on your door. He's asking for money. You're giving him money. You're, you're giving him extra. Uh, you drive by his house. It's getting bigger and bigger and nicer. And he's getting a nicer car. And uh, he comes to church on the weekends. And he's dressed in really nice clothes. And he doesn't even sit in a regular pew anymore. He's got a lazy boy. And, uh, and Jenny, you're not even involved in this at all. I mean, you're completely an innocent party. But it's Aaron. He's just, it's what he's doing, you know? And I mean, how would you feel about that, right? You, you, you come to church and he's, he, right, he's ripping you off and, Aaron's a really nice guy. He would never do that. But how would that, how would that make you feel? You drive by his house and you see how he's living. I mean, I mean, in those days, they hated tax collectors. They just absolutely hated them. In fact, they hated them so much that uh, a, a Jewish tax collector was not even allowed to tithe at his church, right? I mean, that's when you know you're bad, when your church won't even take your money, all right? So there's upper class tax collectors and then lower class sinners, if you will. These are just everyday immoral people, unethical, abusers, people who don't love God, people, you know, drug dealers and users and prostitutes and these these are the kind of people that Jesus is hanging out with. And he's eating meals with them. See, in those days, when you ate a meal with someone, that was, that was a sign of fellowship. So this is, a, this is scandalous to the uh, self-righteous people of Jesus' day. The Pharisees and the scribes. It says they grumbled. They were, they were, they were grumbling. I mean, imagine if, you, if Jesus had come down in, in our day, right? If he'd come down now, to, to, to live for us and to die for us. And imagine he was living in our, you know, around our community. And, and he claimed to be God in the flesh. And imagine, you know, maybe one day you were driving down and you saw he was hanging out at Mary Jane's house of glass, right? And you'd be like, what in the world? Hey, does he even know what, what they're doing there? It's not, it's not about glass, right? Does, do you think he knows that? Or, you know, you, you go by the Bigfoot and he's hanging out in front, you know, with the smokers outside and not, not inside. He's outside. Or maybe you see him hanging out with the town prostitute or drug dealer or hypothetically, because we don't have any of those in Washougal, but right, you know, I mean, if you did, there'd be that, or with just, you know, common thieves. And, you know, the Pharisees are like, does, does he know who these people are? What could he even be thinking? And they're probably thinking, you know, if he, if he knows who they are, well, that tells us something about him, that he would hang out with people like that. And if he doesn't know who they are, then that tells us something about him as well, doesn't it? 
But in fact, Jesus makes it clear again and again and again that he knows who they are. He knows that they're sinners, but he eats with them. He talks with them. He has life with them. He, he ministers to them. He never, he never condones their sin. Never does that. He never takes part in their sin. But he's seeking them out because he desires to save them. It's been said that if Jesus never ate with sinners, he would have eaten all of his meals alone because <laughs> we're all sinners. But there's a third class of sinner in here. And this is a group of people that are know they're sinners, the Pharisees and the scribes, the, the self-righteous, the religious leaders, the, the, the grumblers. And what's interesting to me is that Jesus ate with them too. So he ate with the, with the upper class sinners, he ate with the, with the lower class sinners, but he also, he also spent time with the self-righteous sinners. And they were okay with that. They thought that was okay, but that's always how it is when you're self-righteous. When you're self-righteous, you're always aware of everyone else's sin but never your own. So Jesus wants to help them, wants to help them understand. So he tells them a couple of stories, actually three. We're going to look at two of them today. These are pretty quick stories. In verse three, he says this. So he told them a parable. He says, what man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he is founded, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors. And he says to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Familiar story, you've heard it before. It's a shepherd, he has a hundred sheep. Right? That means he's a, kind of a small to medium business owner in that, those days. It means he's, he's pretty solidly middle class. He's got a, he's got a good income. He's got some inventory. He's got some financial security. Uh, and the scenario here is that he loses one of a of 100 sheep. So he's lost one, but he's still got 99. Now, now, a typical shepherd in those days would have done this, we're told. He would have stayed with the 99. That makes sense, right? Because he's protecting the majority of what he has. And he'd hire somebody for minimum wage to go look for the sheep that was lost. That's just good business sense. But in this story, the shepherd cares so much for the lost sheep that he leaves the safety and the comfort of his home when he doesn't even have to. He walks for miles. He searches. It could take, it could take days. Now, in this story, the sheep, that's us. Right? We're the sheep of the story, which, by the way, is not really a compliment for us because everyone knew back then that sheep are dumb. Uh, they cannot find their way back home when they get lost. They're defenseless against wolves and, and, and against danger. And we're, we're kind of like that. We tend to do dumb things. We tend to wander from God. And when we do it, we tend to get in trouble and, and we're defenseless. In Isaiah 53, 6, it says this, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. We naturally gravitate away from God and towards sin. We get, gravitate towards pride, towards, towards greed, towards narcissism, towards, towards selfishness. And we end up being spiritually lost. We can't find our way back to the shepherd and we're defenseless. So in this story, we're the sheep and there's a shepherd and the shepherd is Jesus. Now, it's interesting because shepherding was not a, uh, the kind of job you aspired to. Not the kind of job, you know, when you were in, when you were in high school and college and somebody said, what do you want to be when you grow up? You were like, I want to be a, I want to be a shepherd. Being a shepherd was kind of the thing you, you fell into. It was considered the lowest legitimate job 
that you could, you could have. Anything below that was like thieves and prostitutes and, you know, tax collectors. If you were a shepherd, you were a social outsider. You lived with sheep. And Jesus identifies himself as a shepherd. Again, it's very interesting to me. Not just a shepherd, but the good shepherd. The good shepherd who became a man, who lived a humble life, who, who lived a, the life of, of poverty, homeless during his ministry years, a religious outcast, a, a, an outsider. And the shepherd in this story goes, goes looking for the sheep. And it says he, he finds the sheep and he picks it up. He puts it on his shoulders. He carries it home. That sheep's probably about 100 pounds. He carries it home. And your salvation is, is like that. The Bible says that you were lost. And Jesus came after you. You didn't look for him. He didn't find him. He found you. He picked you up. He put you on his back. He carried the, the weight of your sin. He died on a cross in order to bring you back to God. He goes on and tells another story. He says, imagine a woman. And she has 10 silver coins. And if she loses one coin, does, does she not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And, and when she has found it, she calls together her friends and her neighbors and she says, you know, rejoice with me. Let's party for I found the coin that I had lost. So a little background here. The, the story is about a woman. She, sounds like she's probably single. Maybe she's widowed. She's on her own. She has 10 silver coins. These coins are kind of her emergency fund. It's her savings account. It's probably all that she has. And most purchases in those days were bartered. So you, you rarely bought anything with cash. So this is a reserve that she has. And we're told that one silver coin back then was the equivalent of about a day's wage for a, for a laborer. So in today's money, maybe it's, a, maybe it's $100. So she has 10 coins, so she's got $1,000, and that's it. And she's on her own, she has $1,000, and she drops one. She, she loses it, and she needs to find it. I mean, how many of you would stop what you were doing to find a $100 bill? I would stop to find a dollar bill, okay? So it's like, I'm like, I'm with her, all right? So now a typical home back then, you have to understand, was about the size of a one-car garage. In fact, still in many parts of the world today, the average home is about the size of a one-car garage. Now, they didn't have windows and doors with high insulation value like we have today. So a lot of small homes didn't have windows and doors. They, they didn't often have any window at all. And the walls would be very, very thick for insulation purposes. And the doors, again, couldn't keep, you know, any of the cold or the heat out. So they would tend to be narrow and tend to be low. And so inside the house, it would be very dark. So this woman loses the coin inside of her home, a small home. So she's going to light a lamp and she's going to move all the furniture, probably not a lot, but all the furniture around, right? This is a big amount of her savings. Move it all around. The floor would be dirt covered with straw. So she's going to sweep the straw and, you know, filter through the straw and look for this coin. Now in this story, again, you know how this goes. The woman represents God. She represents Jesus who is looking for this thing. And the, the lost coin represents us. And in both of these stories, they basically teach that we were lost and that God, get this, that God valued us so much that he sent Jesus to find us. I mean, that's the basic story. And it's kind of nice, right? We have a God who loves us that much. But I want you to notice what the found do in this story. Because it's, it's really unintuitive when you read the story carefully. It says the found, the found repent. Now, some people will tell you that Christianity is basically a process whereby you find God. 
But the truth is you cannot find God any more than the coin could find its way back to the woman who lost it. The, 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 the coin can't brag to the other coins, yeah, you know, I, I got lost, I was down there in the straw, it was kind of scary, but uh, I picked myself up and put myself together and flipped myself right back into the, the coin purse, you know. I mean, the, it can't brag about that. That's not how salvation works. The Bible says that we were, we were dead in our sin. Dead people don't look for God. They don't do that. They don't pursue God. That's why Jesus Christ came to earth, to, to seek us, to, to pick us up, to deal with our sin, to carry us back to God. He says, it's just so I tell, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So this is an interesting part of the story uh, just as you study it because in the story, the sheep don't repent and the coin doesn't repent and yet we're supposed to repent. So there's a little break in the story here. It just kind of jumps right to us. What is required of that which is found? What's required is that they repent. So what does that mean? What does repentance mean? And some people think this repentance is basically where um, I hear about Jesus and then I decide I need Jesus, so I do a bunch of stuff to change the way I live, and, uh, and then I, I, I repent, and then God accepts me, which doesn't really make a lot of sense in this story. So let's think of it this way. Sin is when we turn our back on the shepherd and we wander off. That, that's sin. Anytime we do something that instead of following God and his will, we move away from God and his will, that's very simply, that's what sin is, moving away from the, the shepherd. But repentance then in this story, is, it looks like this. It's where you were lost in your sin and God found you. And, and God picked you up and God saved you. Notice right now, the only thing you did was wander off. God sought you. God saved you. God forgave you. God drew you to himself. And now repentance, I think, just means this. Now you stay with God. You used to wander away from God. Repentance is God draws you to himself and now you stay with him. Another way of thinking about that is you follow him. You follow him, you follow his teaching, you follow his word. Now a lot of times when we talk about repentance and what is it, this is a, this is a difficult thing because in, in different forms of, of Christianity there are different understandings of repentance. As far as I understand it, let me just give you a couple of aspects of repentance. First is confession. As I look in scripture, there's a, a strong connection between repentance and confession. Confession is just this. It's where you, you look at your life, you look at the things you've done, you look at the decisions you've made, attitudes and actions that are sinful. And anything that's sinful, you just agree with God. You just say, that's sin. That greed, yes, God, that's sin. No excuses. You just agree with him. You just agree. Yeah, that thing I said, that, yeah, God, that was sin. That thing I did, yeah, that, that was sin. That lust, yeah, that was sin. That, 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 that selfishness, yes, you just agree with God. And then you, then you confess it. And the typical way that you confess it with God is in prayer. You go to God and you confess. You, you, you actually name your sin. Right, so uh, you don't just like get up in the, in the morning and go, well, God, I, guess, you know, I was a sinner yesterday. <laughs> I can tell that. Uh, so you know, just forgive me for that. That, that. that doesn't help you. You name your sin. Right, that, that's a little bit harder, right? To name your sin. In fact, here's something that's even harder than quietly in prayer naming your sin. Say it out loud. Right? That's, I don't know about you. There, for me, there's something about saying my sin out loud. I was proud. I was, I was selfish. There's something about saying that for me that's it's kind of instructive. 
It kind of helps me understand what a big deal it is, right? It's easier just to think it than it is to say it. Yeah, that, so you confess it in prayer. You name your sin, you ask forgiveness. And the Bible also gives us a strong uh, link to confessing to other people. Because right, uh, this is a big deal. If, if, if you've got a pattern of sin in your life and you want to break it, confessing it to God is the place you want to start. But it's not the place you want to end. Scripture encourages us to confess our sins to one another. Why would we do that? Well, you know why. Have you ever confessed your sin to another person? Do you know how hard that, that is, how humbling that is? It's pretty hard, isn't it, to tell another person that you respect, you know what, I was really just selfish with my wife last night. I was selfish. I said some selfish things. It's just, there's something about saying that out loud, isn't there? That kind of puts a little weight on it. And God says, that's good. That's good because it is a weighty thing. So you confess it. And then there's a second thing I see in Scripture, especially in the Psalms, and that's the idea of contrition. Contrition simply means that you grieve over your sin. It means that you're sad in heart over your sin. In other words, it's not just intellectual. You feel the weight. You feel the weight of your sin. You feel what God feels when it comes to your sin. Right? So it's not just, and again, it's not like, well, okay, I'm going to try to make myself cry. <laughs> and then I'll feel, no, that's not it. It's wrestling with your sin. It's wrestling with it. It's praying about it. It's coming to that place where you could agree emotionally as well with God about your sin. And the third thing is change. By God's grace, you start to change. By God's grace, you begin to develop new godly habits in your life, uh, ways of living, desires. You begin to move away from sin. You begin to follow Jesus. Now, a lot of times when we think about repentance, this is the part we think about. We think about change. We go straight to change. We say, well, to repent means, I, you may be familiar with this, the, the Greek word for repent simply means to change your way of thinking. And if you change the way you think, you'll change the way you live. But it's not just changing the way you think you think and you live. It's not just a checklist. It's about the grace of God. As God gives you his grace, his gift of forgiveness, that grace itself is what begins to change you. That appreciation for what he's done. The Holy Spirit inside of you. See, the Pharisees taught that repentance is adopting their standards of moral purity. But Jesus said that repentance is different. It's following him. It's following his teaching and his Holy Spirit and, and, and all of that in the context of grace. In Romans 2, it tells us this. Or do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and his patience, right? God is patient with us. Patient with us when it comes to our sin. Not knowing that God's kindness, that it's God's mercy, God's grace, is meant to lead you to repentance. What brings us to repentance? Is it our intellect? We figured it out? Is it that we're that smart? No, it's the grace of God. It's the grace of God that brings us to a place of repentance. And then it tells us this, that heaven rejoices. When something is lost, when something is found, it says that heaven rejoices. You need to understand that what heaven rejoices over in this context is you. It's you. When you repent, there's a party in heaven and it's all about you. In verse seven, he says this, just so. I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. 
See, God is grieved when we sin, but he's filled with joy when we repent. So I, I don't know about you, but to me, that's kind of ironic. Most of us are not filled with joy when we repent. Or usually when we repent, we're like, oh, we feel bad and we feel, we feel embarrassed and we don't want to, you know, we kind of want to walk down like this and we don't want to make eye contact with anyone and we don't want anyone to find out when we repent. Isn't it interesting that the Bible says that when we repent, God rejoices. Like God's, God's so excited for us often about the thing that we're embarrassed of. It's, a, it's an interesting concept here. He's filled with joy. By the way, a lot of times when we read this passage, what we think he's talking about is repentance unto salvation. That whenever somebody comes to a place of faith in Christ, that God does a work there, you know, and, and, and he throws a party in heaven. Now that's certainly part of this. But there's reason to believe that when he talks about repentance, it's not just about salvation. It's even about sanctification, right? So salvation is that one point in your life where you come to faith in Christ. But sanctification is a big fancy word that just means to grow spiritually. And if I'm understanding the text and other parts of Scripture correctly, I think what he's saying is anytime you come to a place where you decide to repent of your sin because of the grace of God in your life, that God is joyous about that. He says it again in verse 10. Just so I tell you, there's joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. In fact, notice it says there's joy before the angels of God. So this is interesting because a lot of times we think that what it says is when someone repents, uh, all the angels throw a great big party and it's all really exciting. But actually what it says is the joy, the the, the the picture here is that the angels are watching someone or something rejoice. It's not them. It's something else. And that something else, I think, is God. See, normally, the angels in heaven are rejoicing before God, worshiping him, glorifying him, praising him. But when you repent, I think what it's saying is the angels step back for a minute, get a little quiet, and God rejoices. Yeah, and then I think they kind of jump in, but I can't imagine that. That God rejoices over you. See, the Pharisees didn't share Jesus' perspective at all. I mean, they, when he told the stories, it had been like, oh yeah, if you lose a sheep, yes, you should look for it. If you lose a coin, you should look for it. But they continue to condemn Jesus for seeking lost people. It's ironic, isn't it? That they valued a coin and a sheep more than people. We'll talk about this next week, but we need to be careful that we're not like that as well. See, this is the gospel. The gospel is good news. The gospel is not like you're a messed up sinner, so you need to clean up your act and you need to try harder and you need to be more moral and, and do more good things and find your way back to God. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not that you need to be aware of your sin and figure out what you're going to do about it. The problem is we can't find our own way back to God. We don't have the power to change ourselves. We cannot deal with our sin. That's why we need a good shepherd. A good shepherd who finds you, who carries you home, who takes care of your sin, who restores your soul. See, that's the gospel. That's the gospel. It's the good news. It's the grace of God. And that's the message in both of these stories this morning. The good news is this. You were lost, but through the grace of God, you have been found. How does God feel when you are found? Is he like shaking his finger? Is he saying, I told you not to do that? <laughs> Wait till I get you to heaven. We're going to have a talk. No, he's like, I, we're throwing a party. We're excited for you. 
Now, next week, we're going to continue by talking about the lost son, one of the best known stories in all scripture, the prodigal son. But I want to just close our time this morning by asking a couple of practical questions because this is not going to do us any good if we don't put it into action in our life. So here's the first thing. We need to admit our need for the good shepherd. I mean, that's just the starting point. We have to come to that place in our life where we admit that, that we are sinners and that we need a good shepherd, that we cannot fix our sin problem, that we need a shepherd who will seek us, who will find us a good, good shepherd. That's what we need. Now, sometimes at the end of a, at the end of a sermon, I'll, you know, I'll pray and I'll say, hey, if you want to place your faith in Christ, if you've never done that, we're going to close our eyes and bow our head and, you know, and then we're going to have a little secret hand thing here. So, you know, if you want to give your life to Christ and just slip your hand up really, you know, you don't want anyone to see it and like, that's kind of weird, right? I mean, just think about it this way, man. If you can't raise your hand and say, I'm a Christian in here, I, this is the safest place to say that you're a Christian. I, how are you going to do it out there? Here's a question I want to ask you this morning. Have you come to that place in the past, any time in the past or this morning, where you've realized, where you were able to admit that you need a good shepherd. Right? If you've ever come to that place in your life, would you just raise your hand and raise it high? Just raise your hand. I need a good shepherd. Now, keep it up for a minute. What you're saying is, I'm a sinner, right? I'm a sinner. A high sinner, a low sinner, I don't know. I'm just a sinner. And I could not find my way back to God. And I need a good shepherd. Amen? Amen. Good stuff. All right. You can put your hand down for a second. Okay. Here's the second thing. All right. So you admit. And by the way, I want to tell you this. If, if, you, if you just did that, if this was the first time that you ever did that, then I want to encourage you at the end of, uh, end of the service, come find me and tell me. I'd love to talk to you and pray with you about that. The second thing, repent. Repent. Stay with the shepherd. So you've raised your hand. You said, I admit I need the shepherd. Now here's the thing. Will you stay with the shepherd. And here's one of the things that I've learned over the years, all right, and that is that uh, when, whenever I'm preaching, um, there is a certain segment of the congregation where the Holy Spirit is working. And I love it, just sometimes people come up afterward and say, man, God really spoke to me in this way or this way, or how did you know this about me, or who told you this, or whatever. And I'm like, I don't know any of that stuff. Well, I do now, but I know I didn't know about your sin before. Um, but God knew, and God is working on your heart. Here's the thing. When God puts something on your heart, something you need to repent of, then you just need to do that. Now, now again, okay, re repentance is a, it's an interesting thing because the Bible says God rejoices when we repent, but we're kind of like, I don't, really I don't want to talk about it. Here's a good way to start with repentance. If you're serious, if, so if you're here this morning and God has put something on your heart, there's an area of your life where you have not been following Christ some area, and God has put it on your heart this morning that you need to repent of that. Let me just tell you, one of the best ways to start the process of repentance is to publicly identify that, just to let someone else know. It's, it's great, it's a great, right? Because if you don't tell anybody, then you can just, well, I'll work on it, well, I'll get, but when you tell somebody, there's some accountability there, right? That's when you're saying, I'm serious, man, yeah, I want to change. So here's what we're going to do. All right, I'm going to ask if God has put something on your heart some area in your life where you need to repent, then I'm going to ask you to do something. I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. And by raising your hand, all you're saying is this. There's an area in my life right now 
an area that God's put on my heart that I need to repent, okay? Now, I'm not going to shout it out loud, but I am going to say I need to repent, all right? And that's good. So I'm raising my hand. If God's put something on your, somebody upstairs apparently, uh, just raise your hand. Okay, now keep your hand up. Okay, what you're saying is there's some area in my life where I need to start following Christ. I need to repent. Now here, keep your hand up. Here's the cool thing. God is rejoicing right now over you with your hand up. You're probably like going, oh man, I can't. Oh no, they're looking at me. You know what? Hey, God is rejoicing. And here's the thing. Folks, as a congregation, we should rejoice for each other. You should look at the person near you who's got their hand up and say, awesome. Say, congratulations. Say, I'm praying for you, right? This is how we start. We repent and God rejoices. And that takes us to the, to the third thing I want to encourage you this week, to rejoice. To rejoice. When's the last time you just rejoiced? When's the last time you just said, you know what? I got some challenges and some circumstances, but whatever. I'm going to rejoice today in the fact that I was lost and Jesus found me. I'm going to rejoice. We're going to have a little party at lunch. I'm going to have a, I'm just going to be thankful today. I, and here's the other thing to do. When, when someone around you repents, rejoice in what they've done as well. When someone around you repents, you know, go up and encourage them. Pray for them. Affirm what they've done. But let's rejoice in the fact that, that we who were lost have been found. And here's the last thing. We need to proclaim it. We need to proclaim it to other people. So here's my question for you. Who is there in your life? I mean, who are you going to be with this afternoon or tomorrow? Someplace, maybe it's at work, at school, or wherever. Where are you going to be today or tomorrow where there's somebody who, who has not yet repented? Someone who does not know the Lord. Here's what they need. They need you, a person who is lost but has been found. They need you to tell them about that. Right? I know we, we say this every week. But someone... Someone has to tell them. And I believe that God has put you in their world because you're the one to do it. So here's my question. Who is that? And write that down. Again, write it down. Let the person next to you sit. Who is it? Who is it that, see, again, understand, our God is not casual about this. Our God is not in heaven going, well, I, I hope they find out. Our God left the comfort of heaven. He came down to earth. He was passionate. He was sacrificial. He sought the lost sheep out. And you understand when you come to Christ, if you raise your hand and you're in faith, you're part of God's team now. This is not a casual thing. You need to get up out of the chair and you need to start telling people about Jesus. People who are found don't just keep it to themselves. They share it. They tell other people. So, I'm gonna gonna pray for us and then... um, Super cool. We're going to have a baptism, all right? And then we're going to close with a song that I asked the team to do this weekend because what could be better than singing Amazing Grace? How sweet the sound, right? It saved a wretch like me. Let's pray together.